This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time once again for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we help you understand the evidence that proves that Christianity is true, and the kind of worldview that it provides, making the world a better place to live in. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and I'd like to um, remind our listening audience that you can call us. You can call us at 398-1020. If you have any questions, uh, you can also email us at evidenceforfaith.com. That's the number four, evidence, the number four, faith.com. We're also on Facebook and iTunes. So if you've missed any of our recent shows, you can actually download some of the audio files from either our website, Evidence for Faith, or from iTunes. And I think we're up to about, what, 90 now, Keith? Yep, about 90 90 shows. And speaking of shows, we have an awesome show today. Today, Yeah, we have a great uh, uh, guest that we are uh, getting online now. Uh, He is one of the co-founders of the Intelligent Design Movement, Dr. Stephen C. Myers. So, and, uh, yeah, that... Dr. Meyer is uh, author of um, the book Signature in the Cell, and uh, but we will get to that in a minute. Mike is back with us, so Mike, tell us about your vacation. That was great. Well, I have to tell you, Keith, that I actually did not miss you these last two Sundays. Isn't that a terrible thing to oh, say? Oh, I'm, t- I'm telling you. <laughs> well, I happened to be in Spain uh, the night that... Um, Madrid, that the night that Spain won the World Cup, and I was actually in Madrid uh, with friends and family, and uh, what a what an awesome display of pride, uh, nationalistic pride. The Spanish people haven't waved their flags since Franco was in power. Wow. He was the uh, the fascist dictator that was in power from the late 30s up until the 70s, and of course uh, there's now a new Republican movement there with free elections and so forth. But there was no nationalistic pride until. This past these past two weeks, there were flags flying everywhere. Great. So this this was a really really big time in Spain, and of course there are a lot of factions in Spain that want to divide uh, the country. And our host family was telling us that this was a huge uh, thing to try to bring the country together. And of course with today's uh, news that uh, uh, the Spanish rider won the Tour de France. Oh, it's the, even better. Oh, it's even better. I mean, Spain is riding this crest of, of nationalism that's uh, never been seen before. Of course, this was their first World Cup, and so they're a very, very happy bunch. Well, you had a great vacation then. Indeed. Nancy and I had a wonderful weekend because uh, our son, Stephen Kendricks, was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army. So well, that's awesome. Yeah, so we're very proud of him. Shout out to Stephen and uh, his dedication to... Uh, the United States and and the freedoms that uh, it represents and provides for people. Oh, yeah, Stephen. Yeah. Well, let's get into our topic today. No more news items, no more vacation talk. We have on the phone with us the author of Signature in the Cell, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Dr. Meyer, are you there? Uh, 
Good afternoon. How are you? Very well. Well, we're really proud to have you on the show. Um, for our listening audience, uh, Dr. Meyer is one of the co-founders of the Intelligent Design Movement and is an officer in something called the Discovery Institute. And I thought, Dr. Meyer, that we would start out by getting some of your background and, and telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the Discovery Institute. Sure. Um, I started out in, uh, in the sciences. I did, I was an under, I did uh, undergraduate double major in physics and geology and went and worked in the oil industry for four or five years. And in 1985, when I was a young scientist working in... Uh, for one of the, the uh, I was doing geophysics. My bosses told me my job was to look for all out in the Gulf, and uh, <laughs> that was in Texas. So now they've got lots of all out in the Gulf. But um, in any any case, a conference came to town, and it was a conference of uh, internationally known scientists and philosophers who were discussing the the big issues and where they intersect, where science and philosophy intersected: the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin and nature of human consciousness, and I attended the conference somewhat uh, out of the blue. I had a friend tell me about it, and they came in off the street and listened, and I was just blown away by what I heard. And uh, the, the, it, it, in particular, I got very interested in the question of the origin of the first life. There was a panel that day, leading scientists, all of whom admitted that we didn't really have any kind of evolutionary account for how the first life had arisen from the so-called prebiotic soup, how we got from simple chemicals to the simplest living cell. And I became fascinated in the, que in the, in the topic. There was a scientist on the panel who happened to live in Dallas where I was working. I got to know him better and, uh, and learned more about the, the mystery of, of life's origin, which was the title of, his, uh, of a recent book he'd written. Hmm. And a year later, I was off to graduate school in England. I uh, was fortunate enough to get a a Rotary Fellowship, and uh, went to study in Cambridge and began to do work in a, t in a field called the History and Philosophy of Science, and eventually wrote a Ph.D. dissertation on this, the controversy over the origin of the first life, and that set me on a kind of a long, long quest to get to the bottom of the, of, of, of the mystery, and the book Signature in the Cell is uh, my attempt to pull it all together, which I, I finally finished last year. Well, it's an excellent book. It's, uh, I'm sure people have seen it in the uh, bookstores. It is thick. It's 600 pages, but it's an easy read. Uh, I finished it a couple months ago, and I was very intrigued. It kept me going because it has this very interesting history of the ideas revolving around the origin of life and the theories that were being developed and, and the discovery of DNA. And so it makes for a very fascinating read. And one of the things that I might throw out there is that uh, this book was one of the top ten bestsellers in, on Amazon.com. So uh, this is not a, uh, uh, a piece that uh, uh, you're going to put on the shelf and let it c collect dust. It's a good book. Uh, Dr. Meyer, I have a question for you. Uh, I know that when you uh, did your dissertation at Cambridge in 1991, you wrote it on Of Clues and Causes, a, a Methodological Interpretation of the Origin of Life Studies. Was that actually the foundational uh, piece that you actually expanded into your book? Well, it was because I, I when I left um, Dallas to go to uh, England for, for my postgraduate studies, I had kind of a burning question in the back of my mind. Uh, I had met a scientist, the scientist I mentioned, his name was Charles Thaxton, and in the epilogue to his book uh, published in 1984, uh, he had 
floated the idea that the resolution of the great mystery that was facing scientists about the origin of life might have something to do with intelligence or with uh, what he called an intelligence, uh, intelligent cause. And we later came to call that intelligent design. And uh, the, the, his, his uh, idea was kind of intuitive. The, the, the fundamental mystery surrounding the origin of life, the one that in the book I called the DNA enigma, w- is, the, is the question of the origin of the information that DNA stores. It turns out that, that DNA isn't just the beautiful double helix molecule that we know. It actually stores information in the form of a four-character digital code. It was one of Francis Crick's great insights in the late 1950s. He realized that along the spine of the DNA molecule, there are four chemicals that function just like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters like zeros and ones in a machine code. Only in the, in the DNA, it's a four-character code, So, and the, the chemicals that function like letters or or characters uh, are represented by chemists with the letters A, 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 T, G, and C. And what Dr. Thaxton recognized was that the, the big mystery of, for scientists trying to explain the origin of life was where does that information come from? And he suggested, well, perhaps we could make more sense of it if we were willing to consider the idea of an intelligent cause, because we kind of intuitively recognize that information is a, a mind product. So it's something that comes from intelligence, not undirected processes. And so I, I set out to England with kind of a burning question in my mind, which was, could this intuition that Thaxton had had, uh, you know, expressed be developed into a rigorous scientific argument for intelligent design? I was intrigued but not convinced of his ideas at this point. And so I began to study the methods by which scientists re- investigate the remote past. And that led me to Charles Darwin and to his mentor, Charles Lyell, the great geologist, and I discovered that the scientists who were studying the remote past had some, some very common-sense methods of reasoning that they employed to try to figure out what caused events to happen in the past. And, and when I was reading Darwin and Lyell, I came across their key principle of reasoning, which was that when we're trying to de- determine the cause of events in the remote past, we should be looking for a cause which is known to produce the effects in question. What Lyell had a phrase, he said we should be looking for causes now in operation, what we know from our experience of cause and effect. And when I saw that phrase and understood the principle behind it, the light went on for me, because I began to ask myself a question, what is the cause, the known cause, the cause now in operation for the production of information, for the production of digital code? And I realized there was only one, and it's intelligence. And so I realized that by applying Darwin's scientific method of reasoning about the past, the modern evidence pointed to a decidedly non-Darwinian conclusion, that the evidence of information inside cells pointed to an intelligent cause, and therefore it was possible to make a rigorous scientific case for intelligent design, which is precisely what I attempted to do in in Signature in the Cell. And followed basically the plan that Darwin did in Origin of Species. I used the same scientific method of reasoning, but of course I came to a different conclusion. Darwin denied there was evidence of design, Mm -hmm. but he didn't know what we now know. He didn't know about the nanotechnology inside cells, the miniature machines, and the 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 rotary engines and sliding clamps and and all of that. And he also didn't know about the digital code in the DNA molecule or the complex information processing system that the cell uses to read and express and organize that information. So we're, we're looking at high-tech uh, digital nanotechnology inside every living cell of every living organism. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say what Darwin would have concluded 
if he had known what we know. But what I can say is that if you apply his method of reasoning rigorously to what we now know that he didn't know, the most logical thing to conclude is that there was a designing intelligence responsible for life. Well, tell us a little bit more about some of that nanotechnology, because I find that this is one of the areas that the general population still has not gotten the word out and don't seem to understand that there have been these amazing discoveries of these what really you have to describe as machines. And in one case, uh, you might even describe this item as a robot, the way that it walks one foot in front of the other. And this is actually going on inside living cells. Yeah, absolutely. If, you, if some of your listeners have seen the film Expelled, there's a wonderful animation sequence there where the, uh, the filmmakers ha- have their animator actually show what's going on inside cells. And there's w- one of the sequences is with one of these incredible motor proteins that uh, actually walk like a robot along uh, a, a, a track. They pull vesicles with crucial uh, um, supplies for the cell, and, and there, there's a transportation system inside the cell that's motorized. It's just absolutely incredible. Uh, my story has to do with, with uh, not so much the molecular machines, although I discussed that in some ways, but it's about the way the information, the four-character code in DNA, directs the construction of all the proteins and protein machines that the cell needs to stay alive. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, and if, um, if your listeners don't have the movie Expelled handy, they could go to my website where there's a, a piece of animation that we've had rendered that shows exactly how the digital code in the DNA molecule directs the construction of the, the protein machinery. Yeah. And the closest analogy that I've been able to think of, and it's one I used in the book, was um, uh, that may also give people a handle on what's going on, is to a, a technology that we use in manufacturing plants, whether it's the Ford Motor Company or Boeing Aircraft uh, or many other companies, use a technology called CAD-CAM, Computer Assisted Design and Manufacture. It's a technology whereby we use digital information to direct the construction of mechanical parts. Uh, for example, at the Boeing plant, uh, a, uh, uh, an engineer will sit at a console, a computer console, make some selections of parameters for the building of a particular part. Those selections are literally codified. They're expressed in, and stored in digital code. The code is sent down a wire. It's then translated into another machine code that can be read by a manufacturing center. That that signal carrying that code is then sent to the manufacturing center, and it, it then directs the construction of a me- mechanical part. For example, the, the code may tell the rivet arm exactly, or, or the, the, the robotic arm exactly where to put the rivets on, on an airplane wing. And that is precisely what's going on inside the cell. We're not building uh, airplane wings, but the cell is building mechanical parts made of protein right. that do all the critical functions in the cell. And we've, as I mentioned on the website for my book, we've animated that. There's about a three-minute piece of animation that will Mm. really, I think, open up the world. We call it journey inside the cell, and it really opens up what the information technology is doing to construct some of the the key key protein parts of of the, the cell. And I saw that video today, and it is excellent. It's, it goes along with some other video clips that are out there, but this is at SignatureInTheCell.com. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I it, do it, recommend people go there. It, it is excellent. And, and I know from firsthand experience of trying to explain to people about intelligent design and in 
one case, my father never really seemed to get it until I took him to the computer and I showed him some of this animation, and he talked about it for weeks afterwards and told all his friends. And prior to that, whenever I mentioned uh, intelligent design, his first reaction was, well, that's junk science. That's been the media's line on it, and it yeah. is, it's been a, quite an education for us to see how much the mainstream media can influence public opinion uh, without really ever allowing people to, uh, to, to see what an issue uh, is really about. But uh, uh, intelligent design was in the news quite a lot. In 2005, there was a school board that was trying to get a, a book discussing intelligent design put in its library. The ACLU sued. The school board handled the, the case really poorly, and uh, and they ended up losing it, and uh, and and the, it created a national uh, media firestorm around the issue, and there was all kinds of uh, of publicity. Uh, initially, I think most of that hurt us because the media covered this as the replay of the Scopes trial, and it was a uh, intelligent design was was portrayed as religion masquerading as science or. Uh, we were we were called creationists in cheap tuxedos and so forth, but but uh, this is a a, a science based idea it's based on scientific evidence. It's an inference from biological evidence, and one which, as I I mentioned before, is based on the same methods of scientific reasoning that have been used uh, since the the time of Darwin, when when methods for dis- investigating the remote past were first de- developed in science. So it's a, a scientific research program and. When people see the evidence, it does really change their view of what, what, what we're talking about. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And today with us we have Stephen Meyer, the author of Signature in the Cell. And uh, his book outlines the, uh, the DNA evidence uh, for intelligent design. And Dr. Meyer, I have a question for you with respect to the intelligent design movement. We know that you and uh, Philip Johnson are co-founders of the ID movement. And of course, Philip Johnson's a, uh, a lawyer and a spectacular um, uh, apologist who uh, has, has taken our, our cause uh, over the last 20 years uh, very beautifully, uh, really actually starting back in the late 80s with uh, his book, Darwin on Trial. And I know that Stephen Jay Gould crucified him, and that was one of the... Um, impetuses, if you will, to uh, start the intelligent design movement. Uh, I actually admire what the two of you have been doing, and it's almost like a, a modern-day uh, David and Goliath uh, thing where you guys are taking on the establishment, the scientific establishment, and uh, throwing stones at their intelligence. Um, what would you say to um, um, any scientist, uh, let's say you have a three-minute closing argument uh, in a, uh, a debate or a lecture, uh, who is a skeptic? What would you say in the last three minutes of your closing argument uh, with respect to intelligent design and why they have to consider it as a uh, a real issue in this day of um, of lost science? Well, sure, there are many arguments for intelligent design and many classes of evidence that support uh, the conclusion that a designing intelligence played a role either in the origin of the universe, uh, for example, the fine-tuning of the laws of physics and chemistry point to that, or in the origin of various aspects of, of life or living systems. Uh, I should also mention that the, the, uh, the research community around the theory of intelligent design has, uh, has grown remarkably in, in 20 years since the publication of Darwin on Trial. I would also say that there were a number of other key founders to this, uh, w- 
uh, scientific perspective, Charles Thaxton, the scientist that influenced me, would be uh, would be one, and his co-author Walter Bradley played a big role. So there's been a lot of a lot of key people in this. It's not a one-man show. But um, I, the argument for design that I find most compelling is the one that I developed in Signature in the cell. And let me sketch it for you. Since you said three minutes, I'll try to do it in a minute and a half since I've already talked yeah. for a little bit. Um, uh, as I mentioned, Francis Crick made, had this key insight. He called it the sequence hypothesis, the idea that along the spine of the DNA molecule is code, is uh, a four-character digital code, chemicals functioning just like alphabetic characters in a written language. Bill Gates says the DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever uh, created. Uh, that's a, a hugely suggestive insight because we know from experience, from uniform and repeated experience, the basis of all scientific reasoning, that code comes from programmers. Programs come from programmers. In fact, we know more generally that information in whatever form we find it, whether it's a hieroglyphic inscription, a section of computer code, a paragraph in a book, uh, uh, even information embedded in a radio signal, whenever we find information and we trace it back to its source, we always come to an intelligence, to a mind, not a material process. So the discovery of information embedded along the spine of the DNA molecule, directing the construction of all that protein machinery, is a compelling indicator of prior intelligence. And in making that conclusion, again, we're basing our reasoning on our, our knowledge of cause and effect, our uniform and repeated experience of cause and effect, which is the, the basis of all scientific reasoning about the past and the principle by which Darwin himself reasoned. So this is not only a scientifically based argument in that it's based on scientific evidence, it's also using an established scientific method and therefore should be considered uh, a scientific conclusion. Now, Dr. Meyer, this information that you're talking about that's in the DNA, and it's in the form of a code, but I think in your book you also bring out the fact that this code then has to be translated into another step, into another different code, in order to build these parts that would then go into the construction of some of these nanomachines. So can you describe that a little bit? It seems yeah, to me exactly. that this is... Well, this is also what's portrayed in the animation that we described a minute ago. Uh, the, I've been told, uh, in, in the book, uh, I... I try to weave a case, a scientific case based on evidence, with uh, what, what, what is a basically a mystery story. Mm. Um, yeah, the mystery is, I call the DNA enigma. What is the, where did all the information come from? And I've been told that the, the hardest chapter of the book is chapter five, where I describe the molecular biology in, in some detail, and, and precisely this um, what's called the translation, or the transcription and translation system, or also known as the gene expression system, how the information in DNA directs the construction of proteins. But it's, there's basically two main processes that are involved, one in which the information in the original DNA double helix is copied by a large protein complex called a polymerase, which produces an RNA, single-stranded RNA copy of the original message that was stored in the DNA double helix. And that has a slightly different basis in coding, in that one of the chemical letters in the DNA alphabet is not present in the RNA alphabet and vice versa. But the information is, is, trans, is, uh, is transmitted into this slightly different um, uh, system of, of conveyance. And then that, that single-stranded RNA molecule is copied during a process known as translation. And that's where the, the proteins are, are produced. It's interesting that 
when we use the CAD CAM technology in uh, in an airplane manufacturing plant or automobile manufacturing plant, there's also an initial language, an initial coding system that's then translated into a machine code that the machine that the mechanical uh, uh, assembly machinery can can read. So mm. that the the uh, the similarity between the the the, the technologies is really rather remarkable, and I, I think, if anything, just adds to the, the eerie sense of design that we're, we're looking at. Right. Now, um, one of the interesting things about your book is that this is not just a uh, negative um, attack on evolution. Uh, so many times Christians that you talk to that that believe in evolution, if you ask them why do they believe in evolution, why don't they believe in, in intelligent design, they'll say, well, it's only negative. You know, you're just bashing, just saying that life is so complicated that we don't know how evolution could have done it. And for them, that's not enough to have a, a negative attack. But this, your book is actually giving positive evidence, uh, not that evolution couldn't have done it, but that intelligence actually did do it. Right. Um, I use, again, the method of reasoning that uh, was used by Darwin. It's used widely in science. It has a name. It's called inference to the best explanation, or sometimes called the method of multiple competing hypotheses. And what the scientists are doing when they're using this method is they're trying to infer that explanation, which, if true, would, would provide uh, that hypothesis, which, if true, would provide the best explanation of the evidence, where best, in especially in this historical context, is the the hypothesis that provides a cause uh, which is uniquely known to produce the kind of evidence you're, you're trying to explain. So it's not an argument from ignorance. Oftentimes what we have, we say, you know, it's expressed exactly as you, you put it. The critique of our work is, is expressed exactly as you put it. Uh, well, you're, all you're saying is that life is so complex that it, must, it couldn't have evolved. Therefore, some, therefore, and then you invoke some mysterious concept called intelligent design to... to uh, you know, you know, stand as a, a, a placeholder for our ignorance. Well, that's not it at all. We, there is a critique of the, of the various chemical, they're called chemical evolutionary theories when you're trying to explain the origin of the first life from simple chemicals. And I show that various types of evolutionary theories have all failed to account for the origin of life because they've come up uh, to an impasse when they try to explain the origin of information. That is to say, there isn't a known materialistic entity or cause which is capable of producing information. We know of no cause, material cause, that can produce large amounts of functionally specified information, especially in a digital form. But there is a cause of which we know that is capable of producing information. And, th- and, it's some- and we know about this from our uniform and repeated experience. And again, it's mind or intelligence. Uh, there's a, a leading information theorist in the 1960s who was a pioneer in applying information theory to molecular biology, and he, he made a, a comment that I think is uh, it, it really caught my attention when I came across it, because he said that that the creation of new information is habitually associated with conscious activity. And I thought about that, and I thought, that's right. That, that's, that's something we know from experience. And I knew from my studies of origin of life research and my ordinary experience as a sort of sentient being that there is no other known cause of specified information other than intelligence. And so, so this conclusion, the conclusion that, that intelligent design provides the best explanation, is a positive conclusion based on our knowledge of cause and effect. It, it's the, 
what I, I the way I develop the argument in Signature in the Cell is I show that it's an inference. Intelligent design is an inference to the best explanation because it invokes the only cause known to produce the effect in question. One of the things that I find fascinating about all of this, Dr. Meyer, is the fact that uh, you're using, um, or the, the body of uh, intelligent design scientists uh, are using scientific fact to come to a different conclusion, which I believe makes a whole lot more sense than the uh, evolutionary conclusion that's been brought forth for the last 150 years. Well, uh, it, 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 oh yeah, go ahead, finish your question, sorry. Well, no, the, 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 the concern that I have is that frequently the way they cut your knees out from under you is by saying that there's no body of evidence or a body of work in a peer-reviewed scientific journal that would support your movement. But you're using the actual scientific work of the scientific community and putting it together and showing people that there is, in fact, a better explanation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, we keep a, we, we keep a uh, porthole on our website uh, that just lists all the peer-reviewed scientific publications that have been published that support intelligent design. I think we just posted a, a, uh, a pr uh, an abstract of a new article uh, just last week written by a professor of thermodynamics at the University of Leeds in, in the United Kingdom. So uh, the... the the network of scientists who support intelligent design is growing very fast. It's international. It includes some very highly qualified scientists. We have a new journal called Biocomplexity that uh, has a 32-person strong editorial board, all of established scientists, several of whom are members of national academies in their respective countries. It's an international board. So the, the scientific uh, research community that is interested and supportive of intelligent design is growing. And as I mentioned, the, the argument is based on evidence, uh, scientific evidence, and a standard method of scientific reasoning. Uh, one thing that might be worth noting, though, is that, that though the theory of in intelligent design is based on science, that doesn't mean it might not have religious implications. Um, and uh, certainly many people who have been supportive of Darwinism over the years, Darwinian evolution, have been very outspoken about its anti-religious implications or its materialistic mm -hmm. implications. Uh, many scientists see Darwinism, if true, as having uh, implications that support a materialistic or atheistic worldview in that it affirms that the process by which new life arose was purely unguided and undirected and, and purely material in its basis. Um, if the theory of intelligent design is true, uh, it, it implies that there was a mind of some kind that was responsible for the production of life, and, and uh, there's also design arguments based on developments in cosmology and physics that suggest that there, the universe itself was ha, had a, a basis in intelligence or mind. And so I, I think if you begin to reflect on that, theory, the theory of intelligent design itself only tell, goes so far as to say there was some kind of intelligence. But if you begin to reflect on that in a philosophical way, uh, you realize that uh, there's only so many candidates for an intelligence that would be capable of, of performing those, those tasks. Some have said, well, maybe it's an intelligence that's imminent within the cosmos, and some very prominent scientists have actually proposed that uh, well, maybe there were space aliens or something that intelligently created and then seeded life on Earth. The um, problem with that is twofold. One, if we can't explain life in the first place on Earth, it doesn't get much easier to explain by, by bumping the problem out into outer space. So you've just uh, pushed the problem back one generation. But secondly, not only is there evidence of design at the very beginning of life, but there's also evidence of design in the very fabric of the universe itself and what physicists refer to as the fine-tuning, the anthropic fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of the laws of, 
and constants of physics, the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe, and that seems to point to a design which transcends the universe itself, that points beyond it. And for that reason, I think the scientific evidence is actually the implications of the theory of intelligent design and the evidence that we see, uh, I think, it points in a, in a theistic direction. It seems to point to a, an intelligence which is not imminent and within the cosmos, but transcendent. And for that many other reasons, I, I happen to be uh, a theist and, and, and indeed a Christian. Um, I don't think you can prove Christianity from the scientific evidence, but I think it does provide support uh, for certainly the, the narrow scientific theory of intelligent design, but I think as you begin to reflect on it more broadly, I think that that theory has implications that are uh, what Philip Johnson used to say, uh, the implications are theistic-friendly. And, uh, and, and I don't think there's anything illegitimate in that. Many theories have larger implications. We don't judge theories by whether we like or dislike the implications. The theory of intelligent design is based on science, but it has larger implications that I think are friendly to traditional religious belief. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And uh, today we have with us Dr. Stephen Meyer, author of Signature in the Cell. And we're having a uh, wonderful discussion with Dr. Meyer. Uh, question, Dr. Meyer, and this is sort of a follow-up to uh, what you were just discussing. Uh, one of the problems that we have as we're engaging the scientific community and the truth is becoming more and more evident to them, they blow us off and call us religious creationists. What do you say to them when they, when they hammer you with that, uh, that tag? Well, I always feign hurt feelings, you know, especially when they call us creationists in cheap tuxedos. <laughs> but it, really, when, you're, when you have training in, uh, in law or philosophy or logic, when you find that your opponent is resorting to, to name-calling or ad hominem abuse, that's typically a sure sign of running out of good arguments. I mean, those are logical fallacies. It doesn't. So um, dismissive uh, insults really don't stand as, as good arguments. Now, now, unfortunately, a lot of people who have argued uh, for design or, uh, you know, a religious point of view um, uh, have, have, have often, you know, have been weak, weak on evidence and argument. And so it's uh, so I, I think the key thing is to just to keep the focus on the evidence and to formulate arguments that have some rigor to them that are that are put together well and logical. And I think when you do that, people's people's minds are changed and their minds are opened. Um, but I, I also think right now that the, that the the fact that there are so many in the in the Darwinist community, the evolutionary establishment, that are resorting to that kind of ad hominem and name calling, labeling. I think that's a sign of the bankruptcy of the overall um, Darwinian, Darwinian system. And I say that uh, having assessed the, 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 the key evidential claims of the, of the, of the theory and, and realizing that I think it's got big, big problems. And I think, uh, so uh, to me, the key is not, is not the labels and, and the media stereotypes, but it, keep, keep, the, keep the, the focus on the arguments and the evidence, and I think people are, are gradually won over. Dr. Meyer, getting back to the uh, actual mechanics of what's going on in the DNA, if I recall from your book, you talk about the fact that the DNA is really uh, doesn't have all the information that it takes to build an organism, that the DNA is more or less the list of the parts that you need to make. Like if you're building a house, it might 
list doors and bricks and, and shingles, and then it would tell you how to build a door and, and where doors go and that kind of thing. But as to the actual layout of how many rooms, or in the case if you take an organism, is this organism going to have four legs or two legs? And that kind of information, does it, if I get it right, it's not actually in the DNA. It's somewhere else. Well, that that's uh, that's right, and I really like the way you developed the analogy with the, the parts list in the in the house. Um, uh, I think you did it better than I did in the book. <laughs> but <laughs> it's uh, it, this is principally a problem, not so much for evolutionary theories of the first life, although it may be a problem at that level too. But it's definitely a problem for Darwinian evolution. There are two branches of evolutionary theory. Chemical evolutionary theory attempts to explain the origin of the first life from simpler non-living chemicals. And the, the, the main uh, thesis of my book was a critique of, of chemical evolutionary theory and, and of the proposal of intelligent design as an alternative to chemical evolutionary theory to explain the origin of the first life. But in the epilogue of the book, I look at some of the other research questions that flow from our perception and, and understanding of design and one of them has to do with what we call ontogenetic information, information that is stored at levels beyond the, the genome, beyond the DNA. And we now know that, that um, DNA does, it, it codes for proteins, but proteins have to be organized into cellular structures. And cell types, uh, distinctive cellular structures characterize distinctive cell types, which have to be organized into tissues, and tissues have to be organized into organs, and organs and tissues into body plans. That is, if you're, if you're to build a new organism, you have to have these higher orders of organization. And DNA does not control all the, that higher level organization. It certainly builds the proteins. It may, it may influence the way proteins are organized, but there's an awful lot of organization that is not directed by DNA. And therefore, there must be other sources of information in the cell and in the organism that are responsible for what's called body plan morphogenesis, building a new form of an organism. And as we've learned more and more and begin to realize more and more about the, the, the presence and need for these higher levels of information, that has raised additional problems for the other branch of evolutionary theory, for neo-Darwinian biological evolutionary theory, because according to neo-Darwinism, new form arises as natural selection acts on changes in DNA, the mutations in the genome. That is to say, changes in, the, in information stored at the lowest level of the biological hierarchy. But if DNA alone is not sufficient to organize proteins into cell types, tissues, organs, and body plants, then you can mutate DNA indefinitely. It's no longer a matter of time and chances and number of trials. It's just the wrong tool for the job. You don't have DNA will, in the best of cases, if mutated long enough, it might be able to build you a new protein, but it's not going to explain how the proteins get organized into the cell types and the cell types into the tissues and the tissues and the organs and the new body plants. And so what, what we can, I think, pretty firmly conclude is that the neo-Darwinian mechanism which was what Darwin thought replaced the need to invoke design, can be uh, very uh, decisively shown to be insufficient to produce fundamentally new forms of life. And so the, 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 the question that Darwin set out to solve back in 1859, which is the question of the origin of new form, 
is still very much with us. It's unsolved from the standpoint of mainstream evolutionary theory. Now, this problem then, it seems that would explain what we read about some of the experiments, for instance, that they've done with fruit flies, where they've irradiated the DNA of the fruit fly, and I read one account that said that basically they had irradiated every single uh, point on and, and modified every single point on a fruit fly's DNA, and yet it still remains a fruit fly of some type. It might be mutated to have four wings instead of two, but you really get nothing. There is no different body plan. You don't get plan. any fundamentally new form, exactly. I have a, a colleague, Jonathan Wells, just, uh, summarizing the results of those experiments. He said, you know, we've, we've performed every mutation that we could think of on these, these poor creatures since uh, the beginning of the last century, and we get three types of, of fruit flies. We get normal fruit flies, mutant or you know, deformed fruit flies, and dead fruit flies, but we don't get anything fundamentally new. And uh, there, there are actually multiple problems with um, the role, the, the theories about how mutations supposedly generate new form. But this problem of uh, what's called ontogenetic information is is one of the most fundamental ones because it it really takes the the whole debate out of the realm of of, uh, of speculations about chance or time or probabilities. It's simply DNA, mutating DNA alone is not going to build you a new animal. It's it's very clear once we, as we learn more about about what is involved in the construction of a body plan. Now, and I believe you indicate that it seems like the uh, that information may be in the cell itself, outside the nucleus, so that. In the case of sperm and egg getting together, the sperm provides part of the DNA information. The other part is in the egg, but then the egg, the outside of the nucleus of the egg, will actually contain the information that will provide where are these proteins going to go, where are you going to start uh, adding on new limbs and, and yeah, there's, the there's body clearly plan. structural information in the in the architecture of the maternal uh, embryo. Mm. There's also information in the architecture of the cell itself. There's a protein called tubulin that's a little building block that makes the cytoskeleton inside the cells. And there are lots of different cytoskeletons, different structures in different types of cells, but they're all made of the same protein building block, tubulin. So the DNA codes for building the tubulin, but it's not clear. Well, well it, it appears that the, 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 the three-dimensional structure of the, of the cytoskeleton, which is all made of these tubulin subunits, is inherited from one cell structure to the next. It's heritable structural information. So that's, that's a source of information that's not coming from DNA alone. DNA makes the building blocks, but doesn't determine how the building blocks are arranged. Um, that's only, you know, that's just two of the many possible sources of extra genomic information about which we know. There's an awful lot of other information that must be there that, that hasn't, that, that, that science really hasn't, uh, fully elucidated. We don't know exactly where it all is, but it's an active area of research. But that's another key uh, point, I think, that if you're wedded to the neo-Darwinian perspective, you're disinclined to look for any inform crucial information beyond the genome, because you're committed to the idea that all the information you need is either in the original genome or in the mutations that occur in the genome. And for that reason, Darwinism has actually, I think, impeded scientific research into an area that is beginning to net some real insights, and that is sometimes it's sometimes called the the, the 
area of research is called epigenesis or ontogenetic information. And whereas, conversely, the theory of intelligent design, because it's not wedded to the idea that mutations produced everything, is open to other sources of information. And in fact, I would say that the idea of a hierarchically organized organiz- uh, informational system is something that actually points to intelligent design in another way. We know of only one cause of information, but we also know of only one cause of systems that are hierarchically organized, where you have multiple layers of information being expressed. Mm. And, uh, and again, those are systems that have been designed by, by human beings. Uh, computers actually have that kind of hierarchical organization of information. So I, th- I think the more we learn about life, the, the, the deeper our appreciation of the evidence uh, that there is for design becomes. And, and so uh, that, that's one of the reasons that intelligent design is not just a good scientific argument. It's also, I think, going to be scientifically fruitful in that it's opening our eyes to realities that you wouldn't necessarily look at if you were strictly wedded to a Darwinian viewpoint. You are listening to Evidence for Faith, and with us, special guest, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And Dr. Meyer, I have a, a question for you. Um, I'm a physician internist, and uh, frequently my patients will find out that I am a Christian, and uh, they they are confused a little bit by the fact that I I believe in creation, creationism versus evolution. And their question of me is, how can you, as a scientist and a physician, take that stance? And I try to tell them that very early on in my medical school training, I learned that uh, genetic mutations cause nothing but disease, death, and deformity. Those are the three Ds, and that's what I, I tell people. And I've always found that um, the uh, mutation part of the uh, theory of evolution was, I felt, the uh, the weak or the Achilles heel in their argument. Um, I've also um, tried to express to my patients why it is that uh, I believe what I believe because of all of the arguments that we're we're espousing, and I've always maintained that uh, DNA is the thumbprint of God um, or the language of God or however you want to express it. But or or, the, or the signature in the cell. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly correct. Yeah, or Francis Collins' title, The, the Language of the God. The Language exactly. of God, exactly. And, and that's the adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, the ATGC uh, um, uh, code that we're talking about in DNA. Uh, so I think that you hit on a very, very special um, uh, point when you talked about uh, mutations and the drosophila and the fruit flies and so forth uh, being what they are. You're either dead or deformed or mutant or whatever. And uh, I think that it's uh, it's just an amazing journey that we as scientists are, are taking in the last, really, uh, well, since 1954 when uh, DNA was discovered by Watson and Crick. Um, but, again, we, in all fairness to, to Mr. Darwin, 150 years ago he had no idea what, uh, what DNA was all about. Yeah. And it, my it question... Really, it really ought to have been a kind of a stop-press moment for the whole, you know, the scientific community. When Watson and Crick realized I mean, they, they elucidated the structure of the molecule in, in 1953. But in 1957, Crick had this brilliant insight. He was a code breaker in World War II and, they, uh, and a physicist by training. And he realized that there was a coding system inside the cell and that the, the sequence hypothesis was the idea that the, the four chemicals, the bases, are functioning just like alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in machine code. And that, that's a stunning, a stunning discovery, a stunning insight uh, that information, every cell is running in accord with digital code that's directing its manufacturing, the, the manufacturing of all the proteins. That's just, it's just 
So, so information is running the show in life. Now, um, as, as uh, it's taken the biological community a while to process that, and in the 60s in particular, this seemed to many scientists to provide more, more support for the idea that mutations were the key, the, the, the key driving force in biological change, in, in evolution. But the problem with that, and, and this, this be, has begun to dawn on a lot of scientists, is that when you begin to realize that DNA contains information, something like code or a paragraph in a, in a, in a book, and that a mutation is an undirected change to that, muta- that, that informational sequence, you have to ask yourself a question. If I begin to uh, randomly, uh, in an undirected fashion, change the, the, the order and arrangement of letters in the Shakespearean sonnet or a piece of Bill Gates's software, am I more likely to degrade the meaning and the functional information that was there before, or am I more likely to be adding to it? Well, it turns out that as people have studied this very carefully and mathematically, and I, I, I describe the work of one scientist in particular who's uh, done an a, a extensive um, bit of experimental work on, this, on just this question, the odds are overwhelming, overwhelmingly in favor of the idea that you will be degrading meaning, not adding to it. And in fact, what it turns out that as you randomly change the genetic information for one protein, you can get away with two or three changes at different positions, minor point mutations. But as you begin to make multiple uh, changes at multiple sites, invariably you degrade the existing protein function before you ever come across new protein function. And what that means is you end up terminating evolution at the point that you destroy function because natural selection selects for functional advantage. So you're falling off into a cliff of non, uh, into a kind of non-functional abyss before you ever rise out of it and, and come to something new. And so the, what we now know about the rarity of, 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 of functional proteins in, among all the different combinations there are of the amino acids out of which proteins are made, the rarity of, of functional genes out of all the different ways you can arrange the ACs, Gs, and Ts, it, it now looks as though um, th- there are strict limits on how much a change mutation can produce. And so that, that's a, another critical consideration in suggesting that mutation theory just doesn't account for the origin of the new form, even at the protein level that we need to build new organisms. Mm. Well, Dr. Meyer, we only have a few more minutes left uh, in the end of the show here, but I'd like to hear more about some of the other projects that you're working on. I know I saw you in a video that I recommend to everyone called Unlocking the Mystery of Life. And uh, are you doing any other things like that? Well, we have a new video that's just come out that's about um, not so much uh, the origin of the first life, but the origin of new body plans, the origin of fundamentally new organisms, uh, many of which first arise in an event in the history of life called the Cambrian Explosion. And the, the video is called Darwin's Dilemma, the Mystery of the Cambrian Explosion. It's available on uh, Amazon, uh, along with, with many of our books and, and other materials. Uh, there's a whole series of documentaries that we've done in conjunction with a, uh, a film company called Illustra Media, one called The Mystery of Life's Origin, another called Privileged Planet. If you're listeners go on our website, uh, they'll find a listing of the many books that our scientists and scholars have produced. I think uh, we're, we're 
uh, closing in on 100 books in the 12 years since we started our program. So there's, uh, there's, there are books about the, the, the scientific basis of intelligent design and also about the, the social and, and worldview consequences of the debate over origins. And, and so there's a, just a wealth of material for people that are interested in, these, uh, in, uh, in how science intersects with uh, these foundational worldview questions, how science intersects with faith, and, uh, and so I'd, I guess I'd recommend our website as a good clearinghouse for that. That's discovery.org. All right. And tell us about your true, true you. Oh, right. Uh, that's a, an apologetic series that I did separately from Discovery. Discovery is a, an organization that is, uh, has scientists and philosophers and people who work on poli- policy, and it's not a faith-based uh, organization. Uh, we think the theory of intelligent design has positive implications for faith, but uh, I happen to be a Christian, and um, I've done on, on a separate track with Focus on the Family and uh, Tyndale Publishers a teaching series that I, that based on a class that I used to teach when I was a college professor, and the, the series is called True You, short for university, and uh, the first ten parts of the series are uh, a scientific case for intelligent design, and then uh, and then going further than that, looking at the implications of design for theistic belief, I argue that, that uh, there's a, a strong basis for belief in God based on science and based on our experience of, uh, of um, um, uh, based on our moral experience, and, and I develop a moral argument for God's existence as well as a scientific argument. And then there's a, a second part that's coming out in the fall that is a 10-lecture series on the historical reliability of the Bible. And I think people can find out about that at trueu.org, where the U is capitalized. Uh, Dr. Meyer, one last question for you. Uh, I know that you're uh, friendly with Ben Stein, uh, who was expelled from the New York Times. I was wondering if you had spoken with him since his expulsion and whether or not his uh, involvement in the movie Expelled had anything to do with his uh, exiting the New York Times. Yeah, he was pretty convinced that it did. I have spoken with... uh, with Mr. Stein. He's a delightful character. He's one of the few celebrities that you meet who's exactly the same off-camera as they are on camera. He's just a, a real kick to be around. He was in Seattle about a year ago, and, uh, and I had a chance to reconnect, and uh, he told us some of the backstory and the, the grounds by which he was expelled from his, uh, you know, and his, his, his column was terminated at the New York Times, and uh, he wrote a column on economics and business, and they claimed that it was a conflict of interest for him to endorse products, but many columnists and, and people do that. It, it, it didn't seem to really to have anything to do with that, and uh, he, he was pretty convinced that, that they were not happy about some of the, the politically incorrect stands he'd taken, in particular his support for intelligent design. He was also disinvited from a speaking engagement at the University of Vermont. Um, he was, had been asked to be a graduation speaker, and uh, was disinvited uh, after protests about his involvement in Expelled. So he's been expelled for his involvement mm-hmm. in Expelled a couple of times. And, uh, of course, he's come, come up uh, on his feet. Uh, Ben's got lots of, of uh, talent, creative energies, and he's involved in lots of things. So I think it was the New York Times' loss and certainly the University mm-hmm. of Vermont's mm-hmm. loss not to get Ben Stein, not, not the other way around. Well, Dr. Meyer, it has been a real pleasure having you on. We really appreciate you coming on to Evidence for Faith. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for having me on. I really appreciated the conversation and uh, the, the good questions. Great. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks. And Mike Larrakis. And join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. We're going to be asking the question about the strange religion of Christianity. How does it compare to other religions? So join us each Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.